Hello and welcome to Leading with James Ashton. This podcast brings together leaders from very different organisations in the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond. In each episode, my two guests swap stories about how they learnt to lead and their successes and failures at the top. I'm James Ashton, a journalist, conference speaker and consultant. In this episode, I go from science to shipping. Robin Mortimer is Chief Executive of the Port of London Authority, the 95-mile tidal stretch that runs from Teddington Lock to the North Sea. Trade through its 70 independently owned and operated terminals that include Canby Island, London Gateway and Tilbury hit a 10-year high last year. But Mortimer is not just interested in cargo. His Thames vision also aims to double the number of commuters and tourists that travel by river, as well as making room for sport and recreation. 20 years spent in the civil service means he should know how to keep numerous stakeholders happy. Dr Julie Maxton is the executive director of the Royal Society, which has existed since the 1660s to promote and support excellence in science. Past presidents include Sir Christopher Wren, Samuel Pepys and Sir Isaac Newton. Today the Royal Society has, among its 1,500 fellows, some 74 Nobel laureates. In support of the next generation, it spends almost £100 million a year on research grants. Maxton became the first woman in 350 years to hold her post when she was appointed in 2011. Prior to that, she was the Registrar of Oxford University and also the first woman in that role too. I began the conversation asking Julie whether she treads carefully coming in to run an organisation that is hundreds of years old. Oh yes, you certainly do. I think the first thing you have to do is invest time in finding out about the organisation today and then looking to the past as well. So I spent a lot of time reading into the organisation and getting to know the officers because the officers are are key and they sit on the council of the organisation. So working with other people in the organisation today is really important. Because the Royal Society, and we should say there are a number of Royal Societies, but only one Royal Society, capital R, capital S, which is, I guess, part of the challenge you have is to make sure that people do differentiate and know specifically what you're all about. Yes, certainly that's true. The most frequently asked question is it the Royal Society of what? Because there are so many others. And we have to say the Royal Society of London. And the mission, I think, the Founder Charter, I think it's probably still the mission statement mm-hmm. to recognise, promote and support excellence in science. Very broad. But that's you, a good thing. You could you could interpret that, you and colleagues can interpret that in almost any way you like. It's one of the reasons that the Royal Society has remained relevant from the 1660s till today because we support excellence in science wherever it is done. So in the 18th century, many explorers, etc. Today, excellence in science, Tim Berners-Lee, the web, DNA, fingerprinting, etc. So all through the ages. And it's still one of the three planks of our um, strategic plan. But as the executive director, they don't call you CEO, but I think there's an approximation. I'm going to Mm. make it anyway. How far do you go in reinventing the wheel? in terms of remodelling? Well, the history is a great guide because the history points to things where science has worked in society to make really significant advances. Mm. And I think that's part of the way that the relevance has kept going as we we go on. Mm. And in fact, today, 
I'm doing a program which we call our science and the law program with senior judges and senior scientists. So it's to make sure that there's robust science in the courtroom. Well, I'll come back to your legal background. But Robin, the Port of London, not quite as old as the Royal Society, certainly the river is, but the Port of London goes back to early 20th century. The idea was there needed to be a body to sort of find order in the chaos. Everyone was crowding onto the river. The authorities sprung up. Is it still about finding order now? Very much. I've had a funny one. I, was, I had from the Museum of London Docklands last week the uh, the minutes of the very first PLA meeting board meeting uh, which were quite entertaining and it was you know the, the language was obviously very very different and much more sort of formal but but essentially I mean it, it actually did you know ring home in the sense that they were trying to pull together at that time coherence amongst all of the privatised docks. In a way, it was one of the first nationalisations. Um, and in a way, our, that's still our role. So so one of the things we've been working on is something called the Thames Vision, which sets out you know, how we see the Thames developing over the next 20 years, up to 20, 2035. And it's essentially saying, look, you've got a sort of finite space in this great, you know, wonderful national asset, which is the River Thames running through London. What do we all want it for? How do we make best use of it? And part of our job is to you know, look at competing, sometimes competing interests like uh, recreation or passenger services and say, well, how do you balance those? So, yeah, it's just, you know, there's a, there's a common thread there. And it seems that you might regard it like a growth strategy, if you like. You've set out this plan to make the River Thames the busiest it's ever been. And yeah. some people might look at that and think, oh, crikey. But you don't, obviously. But it's realistic. I mean, I mean, part of that is that we are, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of back on the up. So if you look at the sort of the long history, um, you had the sort of period after containerization in the in the 60s and 70s. And obviously, we saw then the Docklands completely changed. And so all much of the freight which was coming into central London no longer did so. And so there was a sort of feeling of decline for quite a long time in the port. Uh, and then I think about around the turn of the century coming into the, the sort of next decade, uh, we've seen huge investment, particularly London Gateway, the new Dubai world, Dubai ports development in Essex, but also a sort of regeneration of the river for passenger services and recreation. So there's a great sort of feeling of up now and potential. And so my predecessor, actually, uh, uh, Richard Everett, who's now chairman at Dover, I think that the process has sort of started to, to think of the Port of London Authority, to the organisation more broadly. And there, there already been quite a lot of work done to sort of lay the foundations. But the thing that really struck me when I joined was there was nothing Nothing that sort of brought that together. And I guess coming from a government background, you know, having written white papers and all sort of thing, it struck me, well, we kind of need a white paper for the river. We need to know what do we see the future as? And can we get a whole bunch of river users and communities together and come up with something shared and joint? So that was sort of my contribution, if you like, to it. And I, and I think it has helped certainly change the perception of many of the river users who sort of now, I think, see the bigger picture more. So if you're a, if you know, if you've been involved as a rower or you've been involved mm. in, a, in passenger services, because we've got the sort of broader vision, you sort of see how you fit into things a bit better, but also internally within the organisation. And this is still something we're working on to get people sort of feeling, yeah, we're all part of this big venture to grow the use of the River Thames, whether you're a you know, deckhand or a, yeah. or a pilot. And did it go down universally well? I mean, there's a lot of people, you know, family businesses have been working the, the river for generations. With any of them, you know, when you sort of arrive, you know, and develop this plan, was there a case of, you know, who is this? 
this guy? I mean, did you have to sort of sell yourself as well as sell the vision? Well, I think, I mean, again, back to what Julie was saying, I, I think you have to work really hard, particularly coming into a completely new environment to, first of all, mm. to actually get to know people and, and, and what you're about. I mean, I was, you know, that wasn't hard, by the way, because the first thing I did was say, look, I'd really love to go and see this whole river from the estuary to Teddington, which is not a tough thing to do on a nice day. Mm. And so, so I spent a couple of days, you know, going down the river and just sort of seeing things, talking to people. So I think you have to do that. And, and certainly it was, it was quite a few months in that the idea sort of galvanised that we should pull this together into a Thames mm. vision. So did we, did we face pushback? I think there was a sort of scepticism about what was it for? You know, is this a sort of a... You know, why bother? But yeah. I think once you, you know, once you talk to people and say, look, we think this could help you. You know, if you're trying to develop your, you know, fifth generation family business, actually having Transport for London signed up to a vision will help you. And, and, and so if you sort of position it like that, I think it works. Uh-huh. Yes, it's the, it's the sort of route into, route back into politics. This helps you. Sort of, yes, yeah. yeah. So using what you learned before and then sort of exactly. to bring it to the new set of constituents. Julie, I'm interested, you must have had these similar conversations. I know it's a little more historic. You've yep. been in eight years now, mm-hmm. a Royal Society, but I think there are 1,500 fellows, including 74 Nobel laureates. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are very, very involved conversations, I mm-hmm. guess, that you, you have to have with some, you know, quite an impressive set of intellectuals. Certainly, yeah. And they are impressive intellectually. They're also impressive in the vigour with which they advance their views on various topics. So if you're trying to do something and it's not what was done before, you have to explain it very carefully. And as Robin says, you have to show how it will help them or how it would be advantageous to them to do it this mm. way rather than in the old-fashioned way. And I should say you have, I mean, everyone needs one. You have a strategic plan as well. Yes, we do. Um, only five years, though, so you, you've got to add 15 to catch up with Robbins. <laughs> but actually, as you pointed out, it's in our original charters ah, to okay. support excellence okay. in science. So it would be counterintuitive to have a strategic yeah. plan that didn't do that. And it feels like the newer things in there, there's a little bit more of a campaigning voice I, I would detect going through some of, the, some of the cuttings. I mean, your voice particularly in encouraging the government to get the investment in R&D up to 3%. Feels like something. I don't know whether the Royal Society would have had such a view on something like that a few years back. Maybe you'll tell me otherwise. And then I thought the internationalising piece was quite interesting. You really want to be as global as possible and sort of collaborate with whoever's out there. So on the 3%, one of the things that's really important to the scientific community is the money available for investment in science. So To keep that up, we have to keep asking the government to make sure that they keep up the money in science because without that, the economy will struggle and the health uh, health of people will struggle because so many scientific advances play into how well the economy is doing and into people's well-being, etc. So, yes, we do have to keep saying it. And I think the campaigning voice, well, I wouldn't quite put it like that. I would put it more this way, that we are looked to by the scientific community to give the opinion to government of the scientific community as an independent body. So the scientific community comes to us and we reflect that through those kinds of interactions with government. On the international side, the Royal Society has always been international. It had a foreign secretary before the British government had a foreign secretary. We've kept our strategic plan 
simple. It's only got three planks, promoting excellence in science, fostering international collaborations and demonstrating the importance of science to everyone. And I would argue that the Royal Society has done that down the years. It's done it in different ways, in different times, but it's still doing it. Okay, and then because of course there has always been that role, official or unofficial, as a government advisor. Yes, well we are the National Academy of Science and I think it's part of the duty of the National Academy of Science to have those conversations with government and to be an independent voice to government on science and on matters that affect science. And you also say that there's instances where you step forward with evidence for you know the cause of science and so on. It almost feels like you're providing evidence where you know government and others haven't got the resource. Are there examples of where you've stepped in? Sometimes we, we are doing that. One example on that front was shale gas. We were asked by John Beddington, when he was then the chief scientific advisor to the government, if we could do a tightly described report with tight terms of reference on shale gas. And uh, we did it. And we did it with the Royal Academy of Engineering because we work with them as often as we can and where it makes sense. I mean, it's a reminder that science is everywhere. You can't really shy away from the big issues. Oh, absolutely not. I think we are where the big issues are. So climate change, AI, genetic technologies, we work across all of those areas. Robin, can you say a little about talent, how you bring on your people? Because it seems quite a big part of of what you're doing, I think, is called pilotage. So obviously the UK had and has a very long marine tradition. And, you know, we were sort of the maritime nation. Uh, And certainly we we still have preeminence in some parts of that. So in the city, we have, you know, most of the world's leading maritime lawyers and insurers and so on. But we don't have many people go to sea now. And so there is a real sort of challenge in recruiting mariners, i.e. people who can drive big ships. And we've actually been uh, running a big recruitment drive over the last three years to recruit marine pilots. We have about 100 uh, marine pilots. And, you know, it's not a job that most people know about. There's a a great little clip on our website to show what a marine pilot does. And it's it's an amazing job. You know, you you basically take a, a small taxi boat called a cutter. You drive out into the North Sea. Um, in pretty much all weathers, climb up a ladder from the mm. deck of that ship, you know, grab the ladder, climb up, get on, and then take command of the ship and bring it into port. And the obvious reason being that if you are the master of a big uh, ocean-going ship, you can't know every port, so you need a pilot to, to bring you safely in. Mm. So so we've, we've recruited 40 marine pilots and, you know, a real mix of nationalities um, over the last three years. And, you know, it's a very professionalised, as you would expect, uh, sort of training programme. And, mm. you know, you have to have core skills and then we train people on the, the knowledge on the river. So that's sort of one aspect of bringing, you know, sort of talent in and on. And did you, find, you found there was gaps when you, you arrived or or actually is this increased demand from because It's growth. Numbers I mean, it's are of, up. Exactly. It's, you know, we've, we've had growth in demand, uh, London Gateway growing, Tilbury Port growing, lots of other terminals. So, yes, we've, we, we've, we needed more people to serve the level of demand. Julie, with your staff, there's obviously the broad family, the fellows, people all over the world. I mean, a core team of about 200, Mm -hmm. many of those who are... I guess they're helping in, in the work of grant giving and so on, which is a big part of what you do. Yes, um, there's about 30 of the 200 are in okay. in, in the grant section. Yeah. And how do you keep in touch with, I suppose there are a couple of things, keeping in touch with the, the broader family. You've got to be out there talking and, mm. and knowing what's on, what the next thing is. And then as well as that, well, I guess that there has to be a, a personal curiosity to keep you know, understanding where AI will take us and where other new sciences will go. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the wonders of this job, which mm-hmm. is that you're right at the frontiers of scientific discovery. But 
on, on the staff side, yeah, I certainly, I walk around the building a lot. I know what, what each section is doing and they're very different. You know, we have a publishing section, we have a grant section, for example, we have a policy section. So they're very different objectives and very different ways of working in the different sections. Mm. How far will AI take us, do you think? Or are even the best minds still trying to work that out? I think they're trying to work it out. I mean, actually, this morning we're running a, an AI and health workshop. But yesterday I was listening to a paper where it was postulated that perhaps within about 25 years you won't be able to drive a car. You won't be allowed to drive a car because humans are not as good at driving cars as uh, algorithms. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's obviously a read across there because there's a lot of uh, talk in the shipping world of autonomous vessels. I mean, there are you know already smaller you know kind of drone type vessels, but you know the the question of whether you could have you know big tankers or container ships going across the ocean with nobody on board. I mean, I think it raises. I, I, I mean, I think in a way that the technology obviously is one aspect of that. The, the the bigger question it raises around safety regulation and how do you, all of the mm. world's mm. rules around shipping are written in terms of people mm. and having a watch and you know how do you apply those who, who takes responsibility who takes ownership of risk and that I think the regulatory side is going to require more um, effort um, or as much effort as the technology side. Robin you've talked about the sort of the, the white paper model if you like that you brought yeah. from government what did you sort of bundle up from that time and bring into this job? Well I think one big difference actually just a reflection on what Julie was saying is that one of the big differences for me is that I coming into this organization to the PLA you know I can't do anybody else's job or you know I don't think uh, where Whereas in the, you know, if you're a sort of senior leader in the civil service, you've kind of come up generally through the ranks and, you know, you can do uh, the jobs of most of the people in your team. Whereas you come into a into an environment where you've got a lot of deep professionals or people with skills that you don't have. So it's a very different type of leadership required, I think. And I think I think it requires, I guess, uh, you know, it, in a way it focuses you more on what the role of the leader is, the chief executive, because you can't sort of get stuck into, in my case, you know, deep knowledge of maritime safety because there's a chief harbour master who knows that you know far better there's no than point I trying can. to outdo him exactly exactly so so I think it sort of in a way it makes you think more about well actually what is my role specifically um, but sorry going to your question what did I bring in I, I suppose part of it is you know I think that one of the great things about the civil service is it teaches you a lot about evidence base at its best I think the civil service is really good at bringing evidence to bear on mm. a problem uh, and trying to solve it and I think that sort of discipline, that way of thinking, a sort of structured way of thinking about problem solving is is really mm. great training. Is, is there a sort of a different sort of slant on it, though, if you like? People have a view of the civil service. The, the civil service is there to get things done because someone has to. They're kind of doing what needs to be done. They're not necessarily leading in the civil service. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think it's it's inside the, the system. It sort of feels a bit different from the way it's perceived outside. I think the civil service does a lot of leading, actually, on, on policy. And the relationship with ministers is at its best across creative one in which you know the civil servants are doing some of the thought leadership but I, I guess the difference is that the governance is different so obviously in, in government you have you know you have elected ministers who are clearly there to set the direction whereas in a more corporate environment you have in our case a board partly appointed by ministers and partly mm. appointed by the board which can take a longer term view you don't get the churn that you get with ministers mm. and the relationship between the board and the chief executive is different from the relationship between a minister and a civil servant mm. in fact one of the I mean I was very lucky when I when I joined I've had you know two great chairmen and the first uh, the chairman who appointed me Dame Helen Alexander who sadly passed away mm. a couple of years ago she she said to me after our first 
board meeting she said I mean that was great you know re- really good but she said you know you need to remember you're in charge you're not here you know just to you know sort of put ideas to us for you know because that's sort of natural tendency of a civil servant to sort of say well you know here's a recommendation um, and over to you and I guess one of the learnings for me has been you know actually no you pitch up and you say look what I think we should do is this and then obviously you invite views and you know people always do have views and that's what the board's there for and you come out of it hopefully with a better decision but but it's a different kind of dynamic I think from the civil service relationship with the minister. But it sounds like just the sort of thing Helen would say, you know, very bright and very personable, but um, sort of quietly formidable as well. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so take, take that on board. So yeah. going into the, those early days, Robin, did you ever feel they were talking to someone over your shoulder? Do you think, you know, crikey, I'm the boss? Did you feel like an imposter? No, I think you have to. I mean, I, you know, I, you have to build a relationship with a team, obviously. I remember... Um, Helen, you know, describing, you know, before I started describing the team, she said, you know, there are there are people there who've, you know, been in the PLA for in the immediate team for, you know, for a long time. They'll know the place really well, and you know, you have to respect that. And I and I think you go in and you you try and build up those relationships to start with. I I think there's a natural. I don't know if you felt this, Julia. There's a natural kind of insecurity in the sense that you're kind of learning, so you you you're often faced with decisions early on when you think, God, do I do I really know enough yet <laughs> yes, to actually you know be empowered to decide these things? So I think there, you know, for me, you know, it's about making sure that you're honest about that yeah. and getting as much information as you can from those who know more and then you know you have to make a judgment sometimes. And, and Julie when did you know enough do you think? I don't think I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean I, I agree completely um, with Robin. We're always learning all, all the time and um, when, you, when you come into an organisation you've got to be really respectful I think of the people who are there and get to know them and get to know where you can add some kind of value as it were to the organisation as a whole. And I was struck that um, Robin flagged up Problem solving. Well, you know, I think lawyers, barristers, there's something of the problem problem solver about about them. So is that something that you you still sort of fall back on now in in this role? Yeah, I think I do. Almost every day brings a problem to be solved of some sort. And they may be problems between two fellows of the society who have different perspectives on an issue. And in fact, I was solving one last night. But that and I think trying to find a way through is a key part of the the leadership kit, if you like, in an organisation like this. Oxford was a good training ground for that, I have to coming, say. I was coming on to Oxford. <laughs> but just on that problem solving with two fellows, I yeah. mean, you, you actually, is it the equivalent of banging heads together? I hadn't realised the role would be so sort of as personal as that, if you like? Well, you see, uh, our key committees, in fact, all of our committees have fellows on them. These are committees which decide, for example, what policy initiatives we're going to do or how we're going to take forward um, our publications in the world of open access. And some people have one view of open access and others have a different view of open access. So, I mean, from my perspective... I try and understand the two different viewpoints. I try and reflect it to the the fellows. I tell them exactly what I've done because I think being utterly transparent is key. And then I, I get them to meet together. I mean, they don't know I'm doing this. That's just the way it works this, out. This sounds like it's just how it happened in Middle Temple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm interested because your your CV is is fascinating. There's barrister, then into academia with your specialism in equities and pro- mm-hmm. and then next thing you know, you're in administration. You're kind of segged into mm-hmm. into leadership. Mm-hmm. Is it is it is it as easy as it sounds, or does it happen almost without you noticing? Um, I would say the latter. I mean, I <laughs> ne- I never looked for a job in leadership, but I suppose my first 
first one was as dean of the law faculty. But, Which was in Auckland. Yeah, but you were chosen by the faculty. So uh, I tried to get out of it, but I was <laughs> pushed into it. And then, I actually, I quite, I quite enjoyed it. And that's how I got into university administration. And if you take the view that uh, universities are better run by academics, then it's part of the duty, really, of an academic, I think. And you mentioned Oxford. I mean, there was a there was seemingly a turbulent time when you were brought into Oxford. At mm. least the coverage mm. um, was, you know, an, another outsider coming to, mm. to run Oxford. And as registrar there, you are. Effect- I mean, I, I I read it and thought, oh, that feels a bit like civil service, if you like, in that you are you are keeping the machine. Yeah. running the administration of the university yeah. and let the academics be academic almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was it like coming in there as the outsider? I mean, again, it's another ancient institution, so you have to tread a little carefully, don't you? Well, yes. I mean, it, it was a, a tricky time, certainly for the vice chancellor at that time. From my perspective, again, I just operated in the way that I always operate, which is in an open, transparent way, being fair to everybody. There were two sides of a debate at that time. I would listen to all of them and I would just operate in a way that I thought was in the best interests of the university. And actually, we got through. All right. Yeah. And and that was, I think, 8,000 staff effectively that you, you had oversight of. Yes. Well, it, people always said that. But actually, my direct reports were far fewer than that. But, mm. um, but the point was, actually, I was the person that had to solve all the problems. Ultimately, they would just come to the registrar if it was any of the administrative staff couldn't Chief solve. problem solver again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Robin, through, through the time and up to when you became a CEO, was mentorship something you relied on? Were people there sort of guiding you and sort of before Dame Helen gave you her feedback? Yeah, not, not formally. I mean, I guess, yeah, lots of lots of people I worked for, you know, either at the time or later provided, definitely provided mentorship. I mean, another another person was the permanent secretary at DEFRA, um, Dame, another Dame Helen, in fact, Dame Helen Ghosh, who who's now the up in Cambridge and uh, yeah I, I, she was a, a great kind of role model yeah so so I you know I certainly certainly valued I had a lot of you know good bosses who I learned from but I, I don't think I ever had a sort of formal mentor really but you know I'm quite sort of I'm quite gregarious so I tend to sort of talk to lots of people well I'm wondering what you learn I mean as it's, uh, you says you you work for cabinet ministers mm. so four very different personalities I mean you know what does someone like John Prescott tell you about leadership <laughs> I should start to choose my words carefully now. Um, <laughs> no, I think I mean, that that was. I mean, I was really lucky actually because I got you know got very close to very some very senior political leaders when I was you know ridiculously young. Really, I think I was private secretary to John Gummer first in 1996. I was 24. You know, and you you know I was the sort of junior private secretary in the office. But you know, you get to sort of see people in very very high profile public roles, uh, and then John Prescott after that. Yeah, I mean, it taught me. Uh, heaps of things. I mean, I think I suppose one thing that I uh, that you know, I particularly took with me from that was a sort of sense of how decisions are made. You know, so uh, you know, I think before that experience, you know, you have a sort of sense of quite a you know the the, the personal side of decision making not being quite as obvious to you. So when you sort of see people grappling with really tough problems, so you've got the advice from the civil service. You know, there's the sort of the evidence base, and then they're trying to weigh up the you know how something is going to be portrayed in the media how it's going to be seen politically 
uh, and ultimately, you know, sort of grappling with a sort of multi-dimensional problem. And I think that side of it, the, the slightly kind of um, the, the sort of the bit that is very impossible, very difficult to sort of teach or or yep. or, mm-hmm. or write down about how a decision is made. Uh, sort of just seeing people, other people, grapple with that um, is really helpful. It's I kind think. of in the world of soft skills and things, isn't it? That there is, you know, not not yet on the curriculum. Exactly, Julie. Other things we've talked to, we've talked to a lot about how you developed as that leader and chief problem solver. Were there were there things and examples, things that went wrong on the way? Of course, well, things often go go uh, go wrong, and um, I think my attitude to that is it's how you respond to it that's more important than whether something goes wrong. I mean, you can do all all you can to prevent it going wrong, but if it does go wrong, well, what do you do next is really more important. And I'm sorry, I have to ask you about being a, a woman and being a leader. It, it's it's a shame that it's still it's still a question to be asked. But notably, you you've been the first. You know, you've broken two ceilings, first female leader at Royal Society and first registrar at Oxford as well. I suppose it, you must view it as a shame that you have to be first or, or, or what do you think? I view it as a pity that it's still an item of interest. You know, I mean, nobody comments that the governor of the Bank of England is a man. And so I think maybe the sure. day will come when people don't comment on it. In the and, and actually, Mark Carney would love his legacy to be a female governor next so oh, we'll, we'll see that, but, yeah. we'll, we'll see um january next year oh very interesting yeah but do you do more do you feel that there are things you can do in your position to help future female leaders or where this debate is do you actually think the you know getting women into leadership or women into boardrooms a very big issue for helen alexander of course actually there's there's diversity in the round that should take precedence now well, I, I think we do a lot on diversity in the Royal Society, mm. and it's really important to be inclusive in all different ways. So, of course, it's important to get more women into senior positions, but also to get other types of people who are in m- minority groups. It's important to get them too. On your question of whether I can help others, I've never seen myself as a role model, to be honest, but I accept that some people do look at me as a role model. And I'm happy to talk about my career, but I never set out to break any glass ceiling at all. I just set out to be a good lawyer, basically, but life takes you in different directions. And this is just where I've ended up. You know, it's a, it's a comment on society, but by the time you got to the, the ceiling, it still needed breaking. Yeah, yeah. Robin, what about you in, in terms of developing next generation? I mean, you you were there as the 20-something, you know, looking up at the, the, the ministers and so on. Is there, are there things that you're doing now for the next generation? Well, I mean, just on diversity, I mean, we, you know, our sector is, you know, incredibly white and male. And and I think that it is really, I mean, it is really important to have senior senior women. And obviously, Dame Helen Alexander was our chairman, but at the executive level, I appointed a new chief financial officer who was the first woman on the executive board of the PLA in its 110 years. And what was interesting was the, you know, that, that she she said she'd been really surprised in her first couple of weeks how many women in the organisation had said to her, oh, it's it's fantastic we've got a woman on mm. Exco. And so even though, I mean, it's interesting what you say, yeah. Julie, that actually, you know, even though another Julie didn't sort of set out to, to do, that wasn't her aim of, you know, objective of joining, it had a big impact. So it's, it's, that's certainly something we're working really hard on. I mean, in the going back to the pilots, there are 650 
pilots in the whole of the UK, of whom I think nine are women. So, you know, we've got a third of those, but mm. that's three out of 100. So, so we've got, you know, there's a huge way to go. And I think the only way to address that is going to be to start right at the bottom. And we're, we're sort of working at, you know, we're working looking at an apprenticeship program. So you can actually bring girls in from, you know, ultimately from school and then train through different career paths to, to, to kind of go up that ladder. Otherwise, if we recruit from the pool we've got, then obviously we're not going to make much headway much very quickly. Julie, what do you have to do more of as a leader? I mean, it feels like science is quite collaborative, but is it about sharing ideas and funding or striking out on your own? Well, I think one of the things we have to do is make sure that the fellowship know what we're doing and that the fellowship are content with the direction of what we're doing. So that can be handing out grants. It can be fostering our international collaborations. But I think getting out to the public, you know, the third plank of the strategy is really important. And we've been doing public focus groups on AI and genetic engineering. Machine learning was a a very good example of that. And finding out first of all, what people knew about machine learning. And then once you'd explained it to, to them, if they didn't know, we found that their ideas around it were very, very helpful. Because scientists can only tell you what it is possible to do. Science and technology can tell you what it's possible to do. But whether you should do it and what the regulations and the ethics around it are is a whole of society question. So At our peril, we advance science without bringing the public Mm. with us. Because the ethics piece is bigger than ever, really, and you talk about driverless or AI, there is is that. Do you find that the society then has to become more opinionated, or or is it all about you will find the evidence and then the sort of the the conversation, the view almost percolates out of that? Well, I think it's really important in the era that we're living in now that we get the evidence there and that we put the facts out and that people recognise that we're a trustworthy scientific organization and that they can examine the evidence for the facts as we see it. They can challenge the conclusions on the facts if they like, Mm. but it's really important. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree because uh, the, the sort of the trust issue in institutions of all sorts is problematic mm. now, isn't it? And, yeah. and so, I mean, going back to our air quality issue, uh, one of the things we've said to local communities is let's, you know, let's first of all actually measure. So we, you know, we were installing mm. a whole bunch of measuring equipment in sites that people are concerned about, producing a year of data, making it totally available, and then we can have a much better debate. And people feel, therefore, that they've been listened to because they've got the evidence and the facts in front of them. So I think that sort of approach is really important if you want to you know, build not just trust, but actually move things forward. It's interesting because a few years ago, a leader of an organisation, they might just sort of decide and then get on with it. But because of the, the evidences, they, they would have skipped the white paper stage, if you like. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I think that's right. You know, it cuts across all issues, really. And, and I think the other sort of challenge is being more open about your thinking and explaining why you're doing things. So mm. if, you, if you don't describe your workings to the margins, then, you know, people will want to know more. So, yes. Do you find that, Julie? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's no good, for example, scientists imagining what questions the public would ask because they'll get it wrong. And we had that about 10 years ago with genetic modification and the headlines were things like genes in food, question mark, Mm. exclamation mark. And the scientists never thought that that was a perception problem. Mm. Sometimes, you know, when, when I've written on things like, say, technology transfer, there are instances where the scientists are very, very isolated at the at the bench developing this wonderful breakthrough. And then when they finally bring it out to the outside world, they spot that someone else did it a, a couple of years ago. It's about that interconnectedness, I suppose, about an institution like the Royal Society being conscious about what's going on in the rest of the world and 
making sure the fellows are aware as well. I think it's really, really important. In the current atmosphere and climate that we're living in, you really can't be isolated. As, as Robin said, the days have long gone where the Royal Society would write a policy report of several hundred pages mm. and then present it to government, possibly not at the most opportune time. It's a, it's a long time off yet, but what will your legacy be when you hand the Society on to the next Executive Director? Well, I hope that I will have kept it relevant in today's world, that we would be doing things that we've done in the past better and that our systems and processes will be more streamlined. For example, we've introduced electronic voting at the Royal Society just this year, which is a major advance. Well, it's, what, how was it before? It, well, complicated system of electing the fellowship, but it, which culminated in a meeting with a quorum of 21 fellows And often it was very difficult to get 21 fellows to come to a meeting in London to ratify the names on a piece of paper and then go away. The meeting would take about five minutes. How the the process of the sort of fixing the strategy and and where you focus, how does that develop? Do you find that you're led by the fellows within their different specialisms? Or obviously, you always have a high profile president as well. Mm -hmm. Is it a mix of ideas? It's a a mix of ideas. When I started at the Royal Society, Paul Nurse was the president, uh, currently running the Crick. And we set up a little strategy group, which had all the officers of the society on it, and members of council, members of the staff, and some of our grant holders. And we thought about what should the society be doing into the future? We looked at the good things which we'd inherited from the previous strategy and we tried to make it more efficient in its presentation, if if you like. Mm. And then with the new president... We've done it again. With Paul, there were six planks of the strategy. And with Venki Ramakrishnan, the current president, we've put it down to three. But I think they're pretty timeless, actually. Mm. And you have to listen to the same way, Robin. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, going to your question about the uh, future legacy, our, our current chairman, Christopher Rodriguez, has, has coined the phrase custodians of the Tidal Thames, as sort of almost seeing ourselves as yeah, that sort of national trust role. We are a trust. And I think the simple answer is that we want to leave the river in a better place for the next generation. And how you define better, you know, you could then discuss. But, you know, that that's the sort of simple objective, really, to, to leave feeling that, you know, the, the, the river is better, it's safer, it's got more activity, you know, you're leaving it uh, in a better place. Anything you would have done differently if you started your five years again now? I mean, normally people say to me, I'd have done more and faster. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I I was very sort of outward focused, I think, for the first couple of years, working on the sort of thinking about the Thames vision and and the outward bit. I think that I, the sort of the organisation, focusing on the organisation development and that side, we've just run a a leadership programme for our, for 40 of our sort of senior managers, uh, which is, which is great. And, you know, some of those initiatives around the sort of internal culture, I think, I probably would have uh, maybe kicked off a bit earlier. Yeah, it's 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 as you say, it's it's always uh, you know kind of more and faster. Absolutely. Okay, Julie Maxton from Royal Society and Robin Waterman from the Port of London Authority. Thank you for telling us how you lead. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to season one of Leading with me, James Ashton. These podcasts are being released weekly. Please subscribe so you don't miss the latest one. If you've enjoyed what you've heard please follow us on Twitter at LeadingPod and rate and review.